This is the John Oakley Show podcast. James Fursillo, the police officer who cost Sammy Yatima's life on that streetcar back in 2013, uh, granted full day, uh, full parole rather, and uh, so he's looking to become an electrician. 21 months of a six and a half year sentence for second degree murder, and uh, some people are questioning whether or not this is uh, reasonable or proportional. And uh, we've cited there's, you know, a perception it's a legal system rather than a justice system. So let's get our own legal expert, Joseph Newberger from Newberger and Partners, into it here to uh, help unpack a lot of legal questions. Joseph, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm great, John. How are you? Likewise, fine. Uh, you know, we had this discussion with callers in the first hour, and uh, some were just kind of curious that uh, somebody who's committed a pretty serious offense and convicted for second-degree murder and uh, gets... I just need to correct you there. I'm sorry. He was convicted of attempt murder. Oh, my apologies. You're right. Absolutely. Because this was a strange anomaly in that case because, uh, yeah, the second volley of shots when some uh, cited that Sammy Yatim was already uh, dead or on his way, uh, that this was an attempt. Gotcha. Appreciate your straightening that out. Now, uh, the six-and-a-half-year sentence, 21 uh, months actually served good to go according to the parole board feeling he was rehabilitated uh what do you make of that i mean is this the way the system works yeah so let's delve into this with a bit more detail so yes it's it's a six-year sentence and he's out actually a little earlier than one-third and so uh, people can apply for parole at one-third and be released um, if they are not posing a risk to the community and they've undertaken appropriate programs uh, in the uh, jail and we're also you know, dealing with a fair amount of overcrowding in a federal facility. So in Mr. Facillo's situation, the crime occurred within the context of his duties as a police officer. He's no longer a police officer, will no longer be allowed to be carrying any type of firearm. And it seems that he was a, a compliant inmate, had attended programming, and does not present as a risk to the community. And that may very well be true because whatever conduct uh, he did for which he's been convicted for was within a specific context. That being said, as you know very aptly, um, this is a very serious offense where there were multiple shots, and we now know that what the jury did not hear was there was other use of force issues with this officer, and uh, it may not be clear to the public that, in fact, he is rehabilitated and safe to be in the community. I think that's the debate. If we were to look at this on balance, he probably is safe in the community, and he'll remain on parole for the balance of his sentence, and he'll be supervised and monitored, and if there's any issue that arises, he he can go back to jail uh, and serve a a portion of that sentence or the entire portion. But this is the way the system works in Canada, and it is not similar. The United States has a longer period in custody prior to release, but it's quite similar in other uh, jurisdictions that are common law in nature like ours as well. All right. Uh, but you're saying on parole, he has to fulfill the full parole for the six and a half years. Absolutely correct. And that can include more programming. He has to check in with the uh, parole officer and he, he would undergo, you know, continued sort of assessments, uh, therapies, et cetera. And they're going to monitor his work and his whereabouts. So it's not simply, you know, see you later. Uh, He is still on parole. And it does happen from time to time. If somebody violates a term of their release order, they're brought back into jail and then they have a hearing as to whether they should be committed for the rest of their sentence. So he has to be very careful while in the community or runs the risk of going back to jail. 
All right. Uh, citing the law in Canada, Joe Newberger, Global News Radio's legal expert. You know, that surfaced as well in the Meng Wanzhou extradition hearing yesterday in Vancouver. I don't know if you've been following it, but this issue of double criminality came up. And uh, what was cited by the judge was, in fact, it was a question uh, because she was being held for extradition for uh, breaching the sanctions against Iran, allegedly, uh, you know, in terms of her Huawei dealings. And uh, these were imposed by the U.S., but not by Canada. Uh, And so uh, the question arose, would she have committed this crime or would it be considered a crime if she had committed this in Canada? That's an interesting legal question. How do you respond? Yeah, no, I think this is an outstanding issue where the uh, uh, where her uh, lawyers have a very good uh, ground to stand on because the offense of which the U.S. authorities are speaking about are trying to equate it to a fraud. But this is a result of sanctions, as you note, imposed by the United States against Iran, for which there are no similar sanctions in Canada. And um, the the extraditing authority, which is the U.S., their argument is that the operations and the way that there was some connection to this other company with um, its involvement in Iran is a fraud. Uh, it could be a shareholder fraud, whereas the other argument is that there was no uh, longer any shareholding interest in that, that company called Skycom. And I think that you know, this is somewhat of a complicated commercial issue that this judge will have to decide. And if he finds that all it, it, it simply is a it could be on some level a breach of the U.S. sanctions, but it does not amount to double criminality. It doesn't satisfy our definition of a criminal offense in Canada. Then that's the end of the extradition and he and she will be released. Wow. Uh, interesting development and uh, maybe an off-ramp for the government here. Uh, Again, with Joe Newberger, let me ask you about the Harvey Weinstein trial that starts the rape trial in uh, Manhattan tomorrow. Uh, There's apparently, uh, well, people are telegraphing initially anyway uh, what they plan to present uh, by way of a strategy, and the defense, uh, it's being suggested, will go after the accusers on the matters of credibility, past behaviors, and so on and so forth. I mean... I guess with the Me Too movement, uh, many people would sort of recoil from that and think, geez, that's so outdated and uh, you're never going to win over a jury on that. But is that still an effective defense? No, things have, you know, things have come a long way. And, and I'm, I'm going to talk on both sides of this. Um, there, Because of the Me Too movement, and, and I have some concerns about where we've come as a result of this, because you'll see certain advocates from that movement express that, um, women's allegations, and I'm not trying to condemn or say anything um, derogatory about any female or male who comes forward about a sexual assault allegation, but the idea is that the uh, complaint of a sexual assault uh, is genuine uh, and that uh, people don't fabricate allegations. And I think that's just not human nature, and we've all seen in criminal law and other Uh, facets of of trials that people, for whatever reason, have agendas and do make up allegations. So I don't think we should ever get to the point that any allegation of sexual assault should be on its face absolutely believed. What is at issue is certain myths or certain angles on the evidence that really don't um, equate with with consent or with uh, a sexual assault not occurring. So, for example, if there were email or text exchanges between the accused and one of the uh, complainants 
afterward that may even be amorous in nature or very friendly, although they remain in contact, that does not mean that the complainant was still not sexually assaulted, that they did not consent to the acts, because there is legitimacy to the fact that any victim of abuse, including a sexual assault, will react differently, and it may not accord with how we think people should behave, but in fact, it's not inconsistent with the sexual assault. And so what they are predicting now is that there's going to be attacks on the communications and the contact between the complainants and Mr. Weinstein afterward to show that, in fact, there was these uh, very cozy relationships where they were almost romantic in nature. And so that shows that this was all consensual uh, and free and voluntary, and therefore he should not be convicted. But we cannot escape the fact that Mr. Weinstein was very much in a position of power, um, even maybe more so than Bill Cosby because he could make or break somebody's career. So can you really consent in those circumstances? And I think this is where it's going to start to get ugly. And there's going to be other arguments about memory. And uh, in the United States, they're allowed to call a fair amount of expert evidence. And they're going to call a forensic expert about how um, individuals who are sexually assaulted behave. So it's going to be ugly, and it's going to be very interesting. I'm kind of curious, though, because... uh... What you're saying, you know, how people respond differently to sexual assault and sometimes maintaining contact and uh, even seeming like they're somewhat intimate. Wasn't that the whole premise that uh, Gameshi beat the rap on? Yeah, no, absolutely correct. And that's why I'm saying we we have to be very careful. What's happened in Canada, and you and I have had these discussions because I, I, I got very concerned about how far we came in Canada because our liberal government tried to legislate out defenses. Frankly, that's what they've done. They've eliminated preliminary inquiries. And there's all this case law and training going on about how complainants or victims of abuse behave. And so many lines of cross-examination they're trying to say are irrelevant. So in the Gomeshi case, and you're absolutely right about this, there were a ton of communications. But some of those communications were so overpowering in a sense of, you know, uh, you know extolling how the intimacy occurred and everything else. that you, It was inescapable to come to a conclusion that, in fact, there was consent and that at, at these allegations are not made out beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's why I'm very worried that what we should not get to the stage where we rule out what a, an accused can move forward as a defense or, or marshal as a defense evidence, it's up to a jury to decide. And the jury can decide based upon all the evidence, including expert evidence and the testimony of witnesses, whether they believe it or not, beyond a reasonable doubt. But what, what this movement wants to do and advocates want to do is essentially go from allegation to conviction and sort of bypass the trial because any hint of saying that a communication or anything of that nature that's inconsistent with the sexual assault should not matter and should have no weight. And that's, that's where I think we're running into a very dangerous area. And that's why you have this reporting saying it's going to get very ugly because that goes back into the myths. And, you know, they're all about these are no myths. And it, this is a very tense area right now of litigation, frankly, both in Canada and the United States. Activism in the legal profession, who knew? God, can you imagine? (laughs) All right. Uh, Joe, I mean, great explanations as always. Uh, We stand in light, and I appreciate your time. There's more in the hopper, but we'll save it for another day. Thanks, my friend. Have a great show. You got it. Joseph Newberger, Global News Radio's legal expert with Newberger and Partners. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.